Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Hope you enjoyed uh, and uh, survived the big snowstorm in northern Utah. Uh, we have a couple more comments uh, have come in on Bears Ears. You recall on Friday we had a special two-hour program uh, responding to President Obama's creation of the Bears Ears National Monument in southern Utah. And here are two more comments. This uh, first is from Josh. I'm very happy with the monument designation. It protects our beautiful lands for present and future generations. To the Attorney General, the state of Utah needs to stop these ridiculous message lawsuits. Spend that money on education. That's Josh. Thanks for that. And the next up is Jim. Hello. I'm fortunate to spend a couple of weeks a year in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument each year. And I look forward to the Bears Ears receiving similar management philosophy. That's Jim. Thanks for those comments. You can comment as well. Are you in favor of the President's action or opposed? What do you think the management plan should look like? What do you think about uh, the uh, threatened lawsuit uh, challenging the Bears Ears National Monument? Any comments and all are welcome to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we'll get those comments on the air. Thanks for listening today. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nicholas Carr started his blog Rough Type in 2005 when MySpace was a fast-growing social networking site and Facebook was a Palo Alto startup. Now in his book, Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations, he's collected the best of those posts and added influential essays such as Is Google Making Us Stupid? and Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Privacy, which were published in such magazines and sites as The Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, and Politico. Carr's favorite targets are zealots who believe so fervently in computers and data that they abandoned common sense. Cheap digital tools, he says, do not make us all the next Fellini or Dylan. Social networks are not vehicles for self-enlightenment, and likes and retweets are not going to elevate political discourse. Nicholas Carr is the author of The Glass Cage and the Pulitzer Prize finalist The Shallows, among other books. He's former executive editor of Harvard Business Review. He's written for The Atlantic, New York Times, Wired, and other publications, and lives in Boulder, Colorado. Joins us now for the hour. Nicholas Carr, pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I want to start with uh, with politics and the I guess the, the hope of some that uh, social media, the internet, are going to elevate political discourse. You push back on that. We had the first presidential uh, campaign or uh, debate last night, um, and uh, you have a very interesting um, essay called "The Snapchat Candidate," which you 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 mentioned Trump. You talk about Trump. Um, and you talk about the McCain attack. This was one of the early instances where we thought this was going to be a campaign killer. Uh, you say the usual usual drama that the uh, that the uh, media sets up is the uh, candidate steps in it. He is then forced to apologize profusely, and then the media decides whether to forgive him or not. But that was just overwhelmed by Trump's volume of attacks. That's right, and, and I argue that. Every time a new medium, whether it's radio or TV or now uh, the Internet and social media comes along, it, it tends to influence not only how, how people get entertained and so forth, but how politics gets played out. And um, so, so I think what we saw, for instance, when television played the main dominant role in campaigns is that there were a lot of 
uh, the coverage was built around this kind of narrative cycle, uh, what was called the daily news cycle. And, and often you'd see this kind of little drama where, uh, you know, a, a candidate would make, an, make a mistake of some kind or say, or say something offensive, what was typically called a gaffe. And then there'd be a lot of hand-wringing among the media, and, and the candidate would be pilloried, and then finally the candidate would uh, apologize or somehow back away from the statement. And, and when, when Trump went after Senator McCain, you know, actually criticizing the fact that he had been a, a prisoner of war, and, and in fact what most Americans see as a war hero, you know, in the past that would have almost been a disqualifying event, at the very least, uh, you know, the candidate, Trump in this case, would have had to <laughs> offer some apologies and back away. And that never happened. And I think the media all expected it to happen. If you look at the coverage, it, you know, it, it, it plugged right into that traditional narrative cycle. And Trump just went on tweeting and, and not only didn't apologize, but kind of just ratcheted up the, the level of kind of offensive to some comments. And so it it sh I think it it gave an indication, a pretty clear indication, that the rules of campaigns in political discourse are changing now that things like Twitter and Facebook are are for some people the main way they follow news, including elections. I think some are wondering, including me, uh, is this uh, Trump's the first? It seems like he's the innovator. He he's seen something that the others didn't see. Is this uniquely Trump, or, or, or is this going to change, or, or are others going to jump in here? Because it seems like, in the, at least in the Republican primary, others tried to strike the same tone and didn't work for them. Right. I, I mean, I think, you know, a candidate, a more traditional candidate like Jeb Bush, for instance, um, continued to work under the old media assumptions. Um, and and you know his he had, he was doing some stuff on social media but it was kind of just routine you know stuff fundraising things things that already were well established i mean even back in uh, the first uh, back in 2008 we often now refer to that as the facebook election because obama uh, used facebook and social media very well but he used it mainly for for consolidating his base and for raising money it wasn't so much the way candidates interacted with the public until this year. And so I think it will be. <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think this is going to, to affect, you know, broadly the way politics gets done. And so I don't think it's just a Trump phenomenon, even though he was particularly well-suited and continues to be particularly well-suited to kind of the, the mode of discussion that is that often gets a lot of attention on social media which is much more about being provocative than being informative um, and I think you can see other you know the other major populist candidate for instance Bernie Sanders also uh, coming from a different very different political standpoint but also used social media very well and got a lot of attention um, uh, galvanized a lot of people by sending out pithy comments kind of a steady stream uh, whereas the more traditional candidates, like, like Jeb Bush, for instance, and also like Hillary Clinton, uh, during the primary season at least, struggled with that kind of uh, kind of avalanche of, of small comments uh, and, and often very provocative comments. That kind of social media demands if you want to get attention there. Well, based on that, you mentioned this is anytime we get a new medium, then the the rules for politics change based on past. Uh, you know, the 
past arc of, of how this happens, uh, what do you think is next? One thing that, uh, you know, Trump opponents are bemoaning, and, and the media certainly is is uh, bemoaning, is the loss of that gatekeeper, right? The, you, you write that uh, anchors are reduced to reading tweets, and they, they don't have the power they, they had to shape the, the narrative. Uh, certainly doesn't seem to be elevating the political discourse. What What's the next uh, step in the in the evolution, do you think? Um, and, and, you know, I, I should say there, there are good and bad things about this phenomenon. Sometimes, the uh, you know, getting all your information from a TV anchor person or it wasn't always the greatest thing. So, so there is something to be said for more uh, democratization of, of the political messages that, that you get and people being able to comment. But I, I think we've kind of traded the old gatekeeper, the the editor and the anchor and the TV producer for a new kind of gatekeeper, which is the companies that run big social media or or search services, the Googles, Facebooks, Snapchats, Twitters of the world. And instead of, uh, they do their own filtering, and, and you know, as more and more people get essentially all their news through their Facebook feed, then, then you have, then we have this mysterious Facebook algorithm that determines what news gets promoted and what doesn't, which nobody has access to, and yet yet will continue, I think, to play a big role in, in what people actually see. But more than that, the, you know, as you get information through uh, a service like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, it kind of, it, it, it determines the form that those messages come in. Uh, you know, what works uh, on social media are very brief kinds of messages. And I, I fear that, you know, we've already seen, you could argue, for many years, the kind of a growing superficiality in political discussions where it's all about kind of sound bites and headlines and, and people rarely are encouraged to go more deeply into a candidate's views and, and positions. And I fear that as, as social media gets more, uh, a bigger and bigger role in, in campaigns, that this trend will simply accelerate, that, that will will be even more kind of uh, in this kind of superficial stream of very terse comments that then get a lot of reactions and, and, and not only shape what goes on on social media, but also shape the TV coverage and the radio coverage as, as everybody kind of um, focuses in on, on provocative comments. So unfortunately, I, I, I think the dream that a lot of people had about the Internet and, and that, that it, by putting all this information online, it would allow people to go deep into issues and look at other people's perspectives. I think what we might actually be seeing is it, it does very much the opposite and kind of makes sound bites even sound bitier if that's, uh, <laughs> if that's possible. <laughs> right. Um, uh, by the way, uh, you, uh, I guess we could say you embrace this a bit with uh, the, the middle section of your book, Theses in Tweet Form. Which, yes, is, I, which is kind of fun. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think any time you create a new form of expression uh, for people, it will, it will encourage, you know, creativity. People, I mean, the good thing about human beings is we're very creative in adapting to forms, whether it's the form of a sonnet and poetry or a haiku, and, and I think you see it in Twitter, too. Some people are, are uh, quite 
good at coming up with witty, interesting comments in 140 characters. And so I try to I try my hand at a little bit of that in the book. Uh, by the way, the the historian H. W. Brand is uh, he's doing a history of the United States in tweets, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a fun project. Uh, let me just uh, share a couple of my favorites. Uh, just to have you comment on if you, if you want. Um, this is the first series from 2012. Increasing the intelligence of a network tends to decrease the intelligence of those connected to it. <laughs> I can certainly relate to that one. Yeah, and I'm a little wary of expanding too much on an aphorism because <laughs> what makes it good or, or not so good is, is that it's terse and kind of provocative. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I, you know, everybody, the Internet is not just this, you know, this inert, um, neutral cable the way, say, a telephone line was, where, where the only thing that matters is what you say to another person what that person says to you. In fact, uh, the Internet, through, through companies like Google and, and all the others, kind of, they shape the information that flows through it. And, and they can do this in ways that we all value, but also it tends to make us more dependent and reliant on that. So if you're, if you're looking for, a, for information about a topic, you know, now everybody goes to Google, they Google the, the words, and they ne- almost never look behind the top couple of search results or the top couple of advertisements. And so we become, I think the danger here is, is you become so dependent on the Internet services to kind of shape what you look at and, and, and all sorts of other things uh, that you don't engage your own mind or your own curiosity deeply. So it has the, again, it has a kind of effect that's very different from what we expected it to have. Just a couple more and then we'll move on. Um, memory is the medium of absence. Time is the medium of presence. There's, there's something profound. There. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to think about the the role, I, I've spent a lot of time in, in my work thinking about the role of memory in, in our lives, in our intellectual lives, and, you know, as the source of knowledge. Um, and it did seem to me that, that we experience things in, in kind of two dimensions, um, presence, things that are around us immediately, and absence, things that we think about that are no longer there, whether it's a person or a an event, uh, but still kind of is very vivid to us because it exists in our memory. And so that was an, uh, that was an attempt to kind of figure out, you know, how these two things, presence and absence, kind of immediate experience and memory, how, how they play such a large role in shaping not only the way we think, but also kind of how we define our experience and even ourselves. And that's uh, somewhat related to attention span, and you 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 worry some in in some of your writing about uh, what technology is doing to us. Um, with you know, with regard to attention span, I I I think I see just anecdotally, you know, an effect on me. I, I certainly see an effect on myself as well, and that's in fact, you know, several years. I, I used to be a big technology enthusiast and a big. You know, promoter of computers and everything, and 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 I began to notice, and this was close to ten years ago now, that that it did seem to be eroding my ability to pay attention. Um, that you know, if I was if I sat down with a long book or something, or, or or wanted to do anything that required 
screening out distractions and interruptions and really focusing on one thing, I, I found it harder and harder to do because kind of my mind craved going back to the computer screen and Googling and getting all the messages and notifications and alerts we, uh, we crave. And so, and so I, I do, I have come to believe, and this is you know, based not only on my experience and looking at how others behave, but also on some of the science of how we, science of cognition and how our minds work, that we are essentially training ourselves to be constantly distracted, constantly interrupted, to multitask, to be stimulated by lots of little things coming at us. And the cost of that is it becomes harder and harder to tap into the kinds of thinking that require attentiveness, you know, comp- contemplative thought, reflective thought, introspective thought, the, the modes of thinking that, in, at least until recently, most people considered the highest forms of thought that were available to human beings. It's, uh, you know, retaining our humanity in the digital age. We'll, we'll talk about that. Also, you'd, uh, you have a fascinating essay that uh, closes the book, talks about radical human enhancement or transhumanism. So it gets us into a, you know, a possible future in which we fuse with, with technology. Uh, let's take a break. Um, when we come back, um, I'll have uh, Nicholas Carr read uh, from the introduction to his book, Uh, Here's the beginning sentence of that passage. The greatest of Americans' homegrown religions is the religion of technology. Um, And we'll talk about that and and the development of his blog, Rough Type. He's taken uh, the best of the posts of of that blog, which started in 2005, and added uh, essays and reviews. And uh, the result is Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations. Nicholas Carr is the author. He's our guest for the hour. More follows this break. Did you know that a child doesn't need to specialize early in a sport to become an elite player? Parents and coaches may believe their child needs to pick one sport and stick with it from the beginning, but early sports specialization doesn't necessarily make a child a star player later on. So much about the child's adult body size hasn't been determined yet, and the child's adult height and body shape will influence what sport she is best suited for. When young athletes are starting out, it is healthy for them to experiment with different sports. When they do, they are able to get the exercise, social interaction, and fun that attracted them to sports in the first place. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. I'm Chris Delatore, sitting in for Tom Power. Montreal's Patrick Kreef drops by the Q Music Studio to perform from his new record, Automanic. We'll talk about how that record was born out of intense personal grief. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is a New York Times bestseller, Nicholas Carr. He's also a Pulitzer finalist for The Shallows. He's author of The Glass Cage and other books, and he writes the blog Rough Type. It began in 2005 when MySpace was a fast-growing social networking site. Facebook was a Palo Alto startup, 
and uh, now he has this uh, collection out. Uh, he, of course, you you recognize him as uh, the author of such influential essays as "Is Google Making a Stupid?" and "Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Privacy." And uh, some of those essays are included in this uh, book. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at upraxcess. So, Nicholas Carr, before I have you read this uh, selection, uh, you talked just before that about how Rough Type came, came about. You, you made the decision to, to jump into this new world of blogging. Yeah, and this was, as you said, back in 2005. Um, so blogs had been around for a while by then, but it was really... It, it was around 2005, I think, that, that there was big excitement about the, what was called the blogosphere, a, a term that was very popular then. You don't hear that much anymore. And it was also the start of social media. Um, uh, so as you said, Facebook was, was just getting going. People were checking out MySpace and, and other things. And so 2005 was a moment um, in which not only media was changing with the arrival of blogs and so forth, but but in which the, the Internet and the way we use computers was, was changing fundamentally as well. And I'd been writing about technology for a number of years by then, and so I decided to uh, try my hand at, at, at blogging. And at first, it, you know, I, I started, it, started my blog rough type before I really <laughs> had a sense of, of what I wanted to say, um, but it was during the course of 2005 when there was all this sudden hype about how um, social media and social networks would would kind of create a utopia on earth where we, we, we'd see everything democratized and, and everything decentralized and everybody would become their own publisher. Uh, that, that struck me as exaggerated then, and I began commenting on some, on some of that, and that became one of the main themes of the blog and also uh, one that translates into the, into the book that, that just came out as well. So let me have you read this passage. This is uh, Roman numeral uh, page 16, uh, just the bottom of the page, and then over the paragraph top. Yeah, um, so this is from the introduction and, and kind of tries to connect what I was seeing uh, on, online at the time and also continuing to today with, with a tradition, I think, in American thought. Uh, and so this is what I wrote. The greatest of America's homegrown religions, greater than Jehovah's Witnesses, greater than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, greater even than Scientology, is the religion of technology. John Adolphus Etzler, a Pittsburgher, sounded the trumpet in his 1833 testament, The Paradise Within the Reach of All Men. By fulfilling its, quote, mechanical purposes, he wrote, the United States would turn itself into a new Eden, a state of superabundance, where there will be a continual feast, parties of pleasures, novelties, delights, and instructive occupations, not to mention vegetables of infinite variety and appearance. Similar predictions proliferated throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, and in their visions of technological majesty, as the critic and historian Perry Miller wrote, we find the true American sublime. We may blow kisses to agrarians like Jefferson and tree-huggers like Thoreau, but we put our faith in Edison and Ford, Gates and Zuckerberg. It is the technologists who shall lead us. So as you mentioned before you read the passage, this is a very American impulse, isn't it? I think it is. It, and in fact, I was kind of um, surprised when I, when I started digging into, into history. And, and other people, I should say, have, 
have uh, noted this this theme in, in American political and philosophical thought. Um, it, there is this this deep sense, and it, it does go back to the I think the, to the early years of the country that um, that technology and it started off you know back uh, in in the early days of the industrial revolution with factory machines and so forth that technology in and of itself would be a force of social social progress and, and would ultimately uh, free free us to pursue the the creative works free us from work free us from effort give us a life of leisure allow us to live in harmony with one another um, and so in all of those all of those um, beliefs you can see echoed uh, in in the rhetoric about the internet and, and about personal computers so I do think that this is not what we've what we've seen you know with the what I think is an exaggeration of the effects of the internet is nothing new it's very much a part of this tradition of techno utopianism that that runs through American history the central theme that you found uh, in writing the blog rough type um, it is this this idea that there's potential danger in this excessive enthusiasm right but but uh, you know I, I can hear people saying well you know, to borrow from uh, Larry David, it's it's the message of curb your enthusiasm. But uh, but you know, can't we have fun? Can't we dream? What uh, what what's the danger? Do you think? Yeah, and I think you know we want to have idealism, and we want to have uh, people pursuing invention, and 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 across a broad range of of, of technological and other innovations. What the danger is that we begin to see progress in technological terms, um, rather than looking at technology as an aid to social and cultural and personal progress, we, we simply focus on the mechanical innovations, the computer innovations, on the belief that that in, the, in and of itself will, will necessarily lead to a better world and to better lives for all of us. And, and I think what happens is two things that are, are dangerous. One is we fall into the trap of being attracted to novelty. Um, and we see that very much these days with that, you know, every iteration of a smartphone or a new smartphone app becoming this cause for celebration and, and, and for kind of over-enthusiasm. And, and, and we rush to adopt whatever's new without standing back and saying, you know, how is this actually going to influence my life? Is it going to is it going to help me engage more deeply with other people and with the world around me uh, and with knowledge? Or is it going to make me more superficial and more distracted and, and, and simply overstimulated rather than um, uh, thinking and perceiving more deeply? And second, it, 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 it tends to make us defer to big technology companies. Um, and so we, we kind of end up venerating uh, companies like Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon and the people who run them uh, or or who found them and we don't again step back and say you know what is the how do how do these companies think about the human condition and and how are are their products and services deeply influencing uh, the way we communicate the way we think about information the way we think about you know, political discourse and all of these things. So, so the problem with 
techno-utopianism is it tends to turn us all into, into kind of enthusiasts rather than balancing enthusiasm for what's new with skepticism uh, that, that reflects a deeper consideration um, of society and culture and doesn't just believe that the next new technological thing is necessarily a good thing. Uh, to, to illustrate uh, your first point there, that we tend to focus on the technology, be seduced by the technology more than the content, uh, you have a very interesting essay called In the Kingdom of the Board, the One-Armed Bandit is King. And you uh, you cite poet Kenneth Goldsmith, who wrote in Los Angeles uh, Review of Books in an essay. He says he recently uh, he felt an urge to listen to some work by the avant-garde American composer Martin Feldman, and then something very interesting uh, happened. He, he, he got focused more on the technology than on the music of Feldman. Right. He, he wanted to go... He, he, he realized he hadn't listened to, to music by this composer for a long time, and so he went to his computer and dug out you know, the, the folders that had uh, the music he had downloaded by the composer. And, and after all was said and done, he, he listened to a few seconds, I guess, of, of one of the tracks and then moved on to some, some other thing on the computer. And what, what he realized is that rather than the music <laughs> being of central importance to him, fiddling around with music files and, and music software and, you know, hitting play and pause and, and all of the things that we do with our smartphones and our computers to manipulate files and manipulate the experience of listening or reading, those kind of mechanical processes had become more important and more enjoyable to him than actually listening, listening to the music. And that, it struck me that I could, I could relate to that because, you know, it used to be before we started listening to everything uh, online on our computers and smartphones, you know, you'd ha- you'd have a, a vinyl record or a CD, and you'd put it on, and you'd kind of listen to the music. And as soon as as soon as we start using our computer to play these things, you get all of these buttons, and you can pause, and you can skip, and you can shuffle. And I realized that a lot of times I would listen to the first, you know, thirty seconds or minute of a track, and then click next or click shuffle and, and, and listen to the next one. And, and so the, my experience of the art, uh, of the cultural product, had, been, had kind of transferred to an experience of the mechanics of the computer and how it manipulates these things, which is, a very, which is, I think, common in a lot of our lives now. But when you think about it, it is a very kind of strange <laughs> transformation of our experience of culture and art. Then you, you go on, you conclude the essay talking about consumerism and attention. Uh, I'll just read this uh, portion of a couple of paragraphs. Uh, Nicholas Carr writes, In a world dense with stuff, a captivating interface is the perfect consumer good. It packages the very act of consumption as a product. Click by click, we consume our consuming. And then you go on to write, You give the mechanism your attention, and it tells you that your attention has not been wasted. Right, and that that's... That shows us how, and this is going to sound that I'm, uh, I'm attributing kind of diabolical intentions to computer companies and internet companies, and, and that's, that's not the case, but I do think that they, they have become very good at manipulating our behavior, um, giving us, I, th- I think what, what the internet companies and computer companies know is that 
we are easily stimulated, we are easily distracted. We want to know everything that's going on uh, around us. We get fascinated with the little technical details of experience, and therefore they come out with more and more of these things that keep us glued to the screen, keep us tapping and clicking like buttons and so forth. And in that piece, I, I also draw an analogy with um, slot machines and, and how they've developed in, in Las Vegas and other, and other places and how they slot machines are very much about transfixing the gamblers on the mechanics of the machine. Um, so it's not even so much about winning or losing. It's about the uncertainty every time you put more money in, into the slots and press the button or pull the handle, the uncertainty about what's going to happen. And, and it turns out that psychologically we're, we become very compulsive or even very addicted to anything uh, that, that gives us some new experience without quite knowing what the experience will be. And so it can be a slot machine and whether it will pay off or not, or it can be glancing at Facebook to see if somebody has sent you a new message or has liked something you sent out. These are all tie very tightly to our psychology and often, unfortunately, create this kind of compulsive and obsessive behavior. One of the themes, I think, uh, running through the book is that, uh, you know, technology is technology. Uh, we, you know, we, we need to remember we're human and that technology is a tool that can, that can help. But the, the, this utopian view that technology can raise us to the, the heights within us maybe gives way more often to um, just amplifying those baser impulses. One of your quotes, you're talking about Facebook, the desire for privacy is strong, vanity is stronger, and who you are is what you do between notifications. The, I, I think all of us, at some theoretical or abstract level, worry about things like privacy. And, and we know when we go online at this point, I think that Everything we do is, is being tracked, is being monitored, um, is being collected in databases and then sold to marketers or advertisers. And so, so more and more, as, as companies collect all this information, they get a very clear view, sometimes clearer than we have of our own selves, of what's motivating us, what we're interested in. Uh, and it goes beyond you know, what products we're interested in, to kind of what subjects you look at a person's search history and you get a kind of view of their entire life on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, and so we're concerned about this in theory, but then when we go online, it's interesting to watch how people behave. They don't, they don't really change their behavior, even knowing that they're being watched. And, and I started to think about that, and, and I think it's because particularly with social media, you know, the, the kind of our social standing, the way people see us, the way we're engaged or not engaged in conversations with people we know, that is overwhelms, that desire to make sure that we're seen in a good way, the, the worries about status, that overwhelms any concern we have about privacy. And so uh, instead of kind of moderating our use of these things and being careful about the photos we post or whatever, we... We simply were so concerned about our self-image, the image we promote, the, 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 the desire to be part of the conversation with friends and family, that we, we kind of turn off our, <laughs> uh, any kind of filter about our behavior and, and simply kind of become caught up in the social whirl of 
Facebook and Twitter and, and other things. Um, and it shows, again, how, how our basic, kind of these, these deep instincts, in, in this case the social instinct, how powerful they are and how uh, social media and other online services very much tap into them. This is just somewhat parenthetical. I, I can't resist referring to this, but it, it somewhat ties in, to, you know, with human foibles on display. And uh, if we sometimes uh, raise up our idealism, it, it inevitably gets punctured. You write uh, in a very recent post on Rough Type titled White Ocean Riot about Burning Man. Um, you quote Becky Wicks in a, in a GQ uh, post. Apparently, Burning Man, which uh, I think is supposed to be very egalitarian, right? Uh, there, there's a luxury tent. There, was, there are apparently lots of luxury tents. Oh, there are lots of luxury I, tents. I wasn't aware of these. <laughs> I wasn't either, and I, I haven't been to Burning Man. It's the big festival in, in the Nevada desert that, uh, that is very popular among techies and in the executives of, of tech firms and so forth. And it, it started off, you know, with this dream of complete egalitarianism, anti-consumerism, everybody would come without possessions and, and make do and figure out how to live together in the, in the desert. Now it's become kind of this <laughs> very bifurcated experience where you have uh, very wealthy people come in with lots of RVs and create their own luxury camps that are private and, and and are catered and have their own security forces and stuff. And so you still have this rhetoric about Burning Man being this egalitarian anti-consumer event, and yet the reality is that, that it's become uh, very much like society, I think, a, a, a highly consumerist, highly uh, kind of uh, non-egalitarian event where, where wealthy people come and, <laughs> and get catered to. Um, and, and so it's a... In, a, in, in its own small way, it seems to me to symbolize or be a metaphor for how, <laughs> how, how the dreams we have for, for these experiences don't always pan out as they, as they develop. Yeah, and apparently insurgents went and you know, cut the power lines. and there, There's kind of a plaintive uh, you know, post uh, from the organizers of one of the t- tents. Said we're, you know, everything's melting, the, our cooling is going down, and I guess they'll have to be like everybody else at Burning Man. Um, but this it, it illustrates yes, their champagne. Their champagne has gotten warm because the champagne's gotten warm. Their wires, <laughs> but it, but you know it puts me in mind that uh, I don't know. Not only is utopia creepy, uh, is utopia even possible? Seems like uh, that's that's one of the one of the themes. You yearn for utopia, but inevitably, whatever medium we're using this in this case technology that uh, we bring ourselves foibles included, you know, along with with ourselves. That's right, and the the title Utopia is Creepy actually comes from one of the blog posts that I wrote several years ago and is collected in the book. And it was, there, if you go on YouTube, there's there's this genre of futuristic videos that, that are put out by, by tech companies, companies like Microsoft and so forth, that, that give a vision of the future, uh, which, which they define as kind of utopian. Um, and... And when you look at them, they're all about people surrounded by screens and data displays all day long. You know, you get into a, a car and all the windows of the car turn into computer screens, and so you can see your, your calendar or whatever. Um, and your kitchen is just, you know, the counter on your kitchen is a computer screen. And, and in work, there's holograms of data <laughs> floating around. And it struck me that, you know, this is, 
this this is presented as a utopia, but it's actually a very cold kind of robotic existence. Uh, and you realize that a technology utopia, by kind of making everything very efficient and very routine and also getting rid of kind of the negative emotions that, that all of us struggle with, it also drains us of our humanity. So yeah, you, you get this very sterile vision of the future that's really well suited to robots, but it seems to me that you can't, the problem with utopia is by getting rid of all the problematic thoughts and behavior and inefficiencies of human beings, you also get rid of all the good things about us, um, all the, the warmth and the affection and the creativity. Um, and so, this, you know, this is another example of be careful what you wish for because <laughs> it may turn out to be the opposite. What you get may turn out to be the opposite of what you hope for. By the way, as, as we go along, I, I feel the need to point out that you're or give you a chance to point out you're you're not a neo luddite, right? You you use technology. It's just that you're pointing out some of the dangers of uh, over enthusiasm of a utopian view. That's right, and and in fact, in in one of the other themes I think in the book that I try to explore, particularly as it comes toward its conclusion, is not just skepticism or cynicism about technology, but I struggle with my love of technology and try to figure out, you know. Why, why, on the one hand, am I enthusiastic about technology, and on the other hand, very suspicious of it? And, and I come to the conclusion, you know, to put it simply, is that, is that the best tools, the best technology, are things that give us power and kind of expand our ability to uh, appreciate the world around us, to investigate it, to learn about it. Um, and and I think the computer I think the computer started off that way a very powerful tool for exploring all sorts of things, but increasingly has become this media environment that rather than expanding our horizons kind of constrains them and and more and more all of our energy and attention is going to this this kind of blur of information that goes through our smartphone screens and other screens and so I think you know I think there is hope here that, that we can return to kind of a more a view of uh, of computers and other technologies that that is more focused on on them being a set of tools that we can use uh to deepen our engagement with the world and with each other and with information but that's going to that's going to mean challenging the kind of orthodoxy the silicon valley orthodoxy that that has come to dominate our use of these machines Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll uh, have our last segment with Nicholas Carr. He is a Pulitzer finalist, uh, author of The Shallows. He's also written The Glass Cage uh, and other books. His new book is Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations. It's a collection uh, from his blog, uh, Rough Type. He's also added essays, and uh, there's some uh, tweets as well. Um, And uh, more with Nicholas uh, Carr following this break. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The presidential transition from Obama to Trump may seem tense, but in 1933, the same could have been said for Herbert Hoover to Franklin Roosevelt. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. The history behind today's headlines, next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. UPR radio listeners make smart investment choices. They invest their time, their passion, their money, and they support Utah Public Radio. 
make an investment in your patrons. Become a UPR sponsor. Call 435-797-3141 for more information. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Nicholas Carr. He is New York Times bestselling author, uh, previously with The Shallows, The Glass Cage, other books. His new book is a collection from his uh, blog, uh, Rough Type. He's also added uh, essays and reviews. Uh, the title is Utopia is Creepy. You're welcome to join the conversation at upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Nicholas Carr, I want to spend a little bit of time with your fascinating uh, last essay in the book, The uh, Daedalus uh, Mission. Uh, this uh, you know, t- takes us to a possible um, extreme result of our love affair with technology, and that is fusing technology into our actual bodies. Um, we get into uh, talking about radical human enhancement or transhumanism, and I, I learned quite a bit reading this essay. I didn't even know this uh, field was out there, um, at least in this form, this intensity. You start with um, a plastic surgeon, Samuel O. Poor, 2008, University of Wisconsin Medical School, an article in the Journal of Hand Surgery titled Morphological Basis of Arm-to-Wing Trans- Transition. He talks about uh, possibility, perhaps, of fabricating human wings from human arms. He goes on to say, he uses this as a thought experiment, he says, humans should remain human and uh, staying on the ground pondering and studying the intricacies of flight while letting birds be birds and angels be angels. There are, however, some people who disagree with the doctor. That's right, and, and in fact, there was there were all sorts of comments about this article, this article that laid out a medical process for transforming our arms into wings, um, and and he, I think, you know, as most of us, I, I think would would probably agree. He said, you know, um, this is possible, but I don't think we really should do it. And and it there were there there were these hundreds of comments online saying, oh, we should definitely do it. I've always dreamed of having wings. I've always dreamed of flying. Let's let's push this forward with artificial muscles and genetic engineering and, and try to try to develop wings. And I think I, I think we are at the early stages of having new power, technological power, over our bodies and over our minds and how they work. And you can see this with some of the uh, some of the developments that are being done with with, for instance, exoskeletons that uh, that the military in, in particular is pursuing that allow people to have greater stamina, to run faster. And then there's all, all these experiments being done with brain interfaces that, that allow computers in our, in our minds to share information. And you can see this in some very valuable uh, medical treatments for, for hearing loss and for vision loss that are very exciting, actually. But also they point to a future in which... Our, our thoughts will be augmented or extended by being hooked up to computers. And finally, there are the genetic advances. There's a tool called CRISPR that listeners will, many listeners may be aware of that allows uh, scientists to, to fiddle with the genetic code and, and splice in pieces of genetic code from other species into a, into a species. And so we're at this, I think, inflection point where we'll be able to, at a very deep and, and, and profound level, alter the way our minds and bodies work. And that's 
that's created this movement that's often called the transhumanist or transhumanism movement of, of people, including you know, academics and scientists who are very excited about this and, and want us to kind of get on with the program and, and elevate the human race by changing it technologically. And then there are, of course, uh, people who are often referred to as bioconservatives that say, well, wait a minute, you know, this, if this doesn't turn into a Pandora's box where we create some scary um, future, it will, it will undermine our very humanity, and it, rather than bringing people to a, the next level, will kind of turn us more into machines. And so I, I do think that this is something that all of us in society in general are really going to be struggling with in the coming decades. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. Um, you use a very interesting analogy of tattoos. You say tattoos illustrate, and it's my word pun intended, I guess, at this point, tattoos illustrate the usual trajectory for body modifications. First we recoil, then we get used to them, and then we embrace them. And I, I, I do think that that is what tends to happen. Any, I think any new procedure that alters the body um, is something that we're, at first, very uncomfortable with, um, and and we saw that with with tattoos. Originally, they were kind of uh, it was they were kind of thought of as being kind of outside the bonds of civilized society, so to speak. And so, uh, uh, certain people would have them, but they 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 were on the periphery of society. And now, you know, that they're they become incredibly common. They're a billion dollar industry in the U.S. and everything, and. Yeah, there are still some people who are a little creeped out maybe by tattoos, particularly when they're on people's necks and faces. But, you know, as a social norm, they, they have become kind of normal. And in a, in a small way, but a telling way, I think that shows that you can't just assume that, we, that people are going to reject uh, body modifications that, that go much deeper than skin deep and, and really change... Uh, our moods, our emotions, our intellectual capacities, as well as the way our bodies work, I think we'll be nervous about them at first, as we always are, but I think if they begin to give people a sense of satisfaction, or or if we're talking about the way our minds work, a kind of advantage uh, by being able to stay awake longer or whatever, I think it's very, very possible that they could become normal over time and, and people will be expected to kind of alter their bodies and minds in various ways. Do you, you think this is inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable, mm. um, but I, I think it's certainly possible. I, you, can, you can also come up with a scenario where something very bad happens and we do unleash <laughs> kind of a, a monster into society, which could very, very quickly change change society's views um, and so that's possible but I, I I would say the future when it comes to these kind of transhumanist technologies uh, we shouldn't believe it will go down one path it, it, it we may be surprised by our own behavior do you uh, the, the deadless mission that the title for it uh, you know seemed to indicate a criticism or do you uh, more on the side of the bioconservatives or do you, do you are you excited by possibilities I think um, I started off when I when I first started writing it, being very much on the side of the bioconservatives and being very nervous about it, and I'm still <laughs> nervous about it. But on the other hand, I can also see how this 
this is I, what I ultimately argue is this is going to be probably less about technology and more about people's mythologizing of themselves, um, which is why I, I refer to the, the myth of Daedalus and Icarus in the, in the title, that we, for all our rational postures and, and, and logical faith and logical thought, we're also very tied up in, in, in mythological dreams about ourselves. And, and I think you see it in, <laughs> in the reaction to the wings and, and people saying, oh, I, I'd love to fly. And I end the, the story with, the, with a, a tragic story about wingsuiters, the people who put on uh, what are sometimes called the squirrel suits and, and jump off of cliffs and stuff and fly. And, and so I think, and I don't dismiss that about us. I, I mean, I think it can be quite ennobling in a way, to to want to push beyond boundaries. So I see it as both very, very risky, but also an expression of a side of us that is in some time, that is in some cases worthy of admiration. And you you write at least from the point of view of those who are excited by transhumanism uh, that we can extend the enlightenment into ourselves. That seems to be a, a theme. You also write, and we're out of time here, but uh, you can read about this about the Digital Public Library of America, this impulse to, you know, an, that's an enlightenment dream, to, to be able to read anything ever written. But, but you go on to, to talk about uh, problems, including copyright. Uh, we will uh, leave that for the book. The, uh, the book's fascinating. Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations. Nicholas Carr is uh, the author. He's author previously of The Shallows and uh, The Glass Cage and other uh, books. And uh, his uh, website, by the way, uh, nicholascarr.com. Nicholas Carr, pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. 